Hello everyone, you're listening to Otok, a podcast about islands and islanders. I am Boyan First. This week, I am playing a little bit of a catch-up, so you get two episodes. My guest in the first episode of this week is James Ausmore. The song you are listening to is the first of James's picks and comes from Ryan Bent, the winner of the 2018 Jamaican Solar Challenge. Jamaica light built too much, it need the renewable energy touch. So we gonna save the country, make we use renewable energy. Sunshine we get every day, breeze a blow same way. James Ellsmore is the founder and managing director of Island Innovation, an organization that works with diverse rural and island communities around the world. They provide a range of services, helping communities develop solutions for sustainable development and prosperity. With its extensive network around the world, Island Innovation also works with the academic community, helping host international virtual sessions on island issues and supporting a range of research projects. Tell me, how did you become interested in islands and island studies? So I actually entered originally into island studies from a renewable energy perspective. So I was really interested in in energy. And as I'm sure you know, islands in general tend to have um, expensive electricity um, issues compared to uh, mainland areas. Um, And so they make kind of interesting case studies for talking about renewables. So I was lucky enough uh, way back when I did my my undergraduate, I was lucky enough to get a research grant to study around the Pacific Islands um, and to do a research project on renewable energy in Samoa, Tuvalu, um, Fiji, and Niue. Um, and so I got to visit those islands. And then at the time, I was living on the east coast of the U.S. And obviously, it was impractical to kind of be heading down to the Pacific too often. So uh, that was my introduction to the Caribbean um, and I got to uh, do some similar work there. And what was really interesting for me was seeing, obviously, Caribbean and Pacific Islands are very um, separated, very far apart, but the obvious uh, commonalities between them, as well as the differences too. And so after that, I decided to do a master's in island studies at the University of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland, uh, based in Orkney. And again, that was uh, that was obviously focused mostly on Scottish islands and the North Atlantic, but I was actually studying that remotely while in the Caribbean. And so that gave me a really comparative um, introduction to island studies to be able to kind of be in and study these very different regions, see the value of technology to connect them, um, and uh, yeah, be be able to also understanding the island studies lens. I think UHI is a fantastic program. So it's a really good introduction from that sense. Great. Uh, actually, I want to ask you, I sort of have two lines of questioning for you, but let's start with uh, just what you just mentioned about the ways of connecting islands, which suddenly became even more important at the time of the pandemic. Um, how did you become interested in this um remote connecting islands and what kind of experiments have you done so far because i know that you've done some quite elaborate things 
Well, there's been a couple of things, really. I, I think it, it just makes sense that we're using technology more and more and more. And the Island Studies master's degree that I mentioned at UHI uh, is a great example of that. And that was one of my introductions. I think UHI is a fairly new university. I think it's, tw I'm going to say 2012 since it was founded, but um, might, might not be exactly right. But somewhere around then that the university came into being um, to provide education to basically the northern half of Scotland and to increase the offerings that were there and connect all these universities. So in itself, I think it's a fantastic institution that it was able to help bring um, and provide better quality education to remote areas. And I took advantage of that for a slightly different purpose. Obviously, people living in rural areas, the idea is that they can study from home, but I just happened to be um, working while I was studying um, from the Caribbean. Um, and so that, that kind of opened my eyes to a lot. But, but also, um, coming from a very rural area myself and seeing the opportunities that these connections and understanding other areas um, have, I, 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 think, um, I think that is the opportunity here with technology. So we ran the Virtual Island Summit last year, obviously before any of, um, you know, without predicting how relevant that would be now in 2020. And we were able to reach 4,000 islanders from all over the world, have over 100 speakers. And I think actually it was preferable doing that event as a virtual event than if we'd have done a physical in-person event. Um, obviously, I'm not. there's still a lot of value in in-person events and the face-to-face, -face, et cetera. And I don't think virtual events will ever replace them once things start to get back to normal. But by able to have kind of a location-independent conference, we weren't biasing it towards one one particular island, and so we were able to have, say, a panel with um, with presenters from uh, Northern Europe, the Caribbean, the Indian Ocean, Japan, the Pacific Islands, and give a very comparative approach to island studies uh, issues. And uh, so, so the Virtual Island Summit was the main was the main one. But we've been using technology. Um, as a, we have we have a team at Island Innovation of six people um, spread out all over the world. Um, and so for, I guess for me personally, my whole career in education has been built up using this virtual technology. And so it comes quite naturally to me in that sense. What were some of the challenges that you encountered with the Island Summit um, that, you know, if, if, if you do the second one, you would do it differently? Absolutely. So I think one is maybe an obvious one is time zones trying to yes of course uh, trying to reach everyone and we definitely last year were a little bit biased towards the Americas Europe Africa time zones which left out Asia and the Pacific which obviously has a huge amount to contribute here that was kind of partly because our audience was already biased towards those regions so we're making a real effort this year to reach out more to the Pacific Islands. Um, which is slightly easier given that a lot of the English is widely spoken there. Um, a little bit more challenging is uh, Japan, China, Indonesia, Philippines, maybe less so Philippines, but some of the Asian islands, which I think have a huge amount to contribute, um, but often the language barrier um, is, is, is there as well. So uh, that's something that we definitely want to try and do a better job at this year. I think also having a virtual event, obviously you lose some of those connections. And so our original plan for this year, although to be honest right now, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to go ahead with it, was that we would have physical meetups. So this event, Virtual Island Summit, is in early September. Um, and we had planned that there would be 
physical meetups happening on different islands around the world. So it would be at the same time as being a super global event, we'd also have these very localized sessions. And we're kind of, we're, we're working with local partners to organize those. And the idea is it could be as simple as just screening one of the sessions and then having a cup of tea and coffee afterwards and, and maybe a slice of cake. Or it could be, I mean, we have someone even right up to the World Bank who is organizing a session in Washington, D.C., which will be kind of a, a panel discussion very relevant to the issues that they concern about the World Bank. For me, that was really exciting, the idea of islands all over the world having these small meetings, but being able to plug into this global network, and, but then think about how it's applied locally. Obviously, I really the, sorry, almost done. The just given the um, uh, pandemic now, we're not sure whether that's going to be able to go ahead by September or maybe limited to some islands. But we also have an ambassadors program, which is individual ambassadors from different islands who have applied to join the program, and they will help represent that island um, in our kind of planning discussions and uh, make sure that we can kind of try and connect as much as possible with local communities whilst keeping things global. I really like this idea of a blended model that allows, you know, for local conversations that are also important, but within a global context. That's, uh, I think that really has some interesting potential. Yeah, well, let's see if we can uh, get something going at uh, the Harris Center and Memorial as well. I know your, your colleagues at UPEI are already planning one, so let's see if we can do something there. Obviously, yeah, we would absolutely love to be part of that. Difficult to know where we'll be in September. Yes. How did you deal with the language barrier? Because uh, it can be significant, especially since you know you're you're dealing with a global audience and global participants. And as as uh, much as English is sort of a lingua franca, especially of the academic world. Um, you know, it would be nice to to be able to hold these events in a more inclusive way as well. Uh, how did you deal with it? I, I would say last year, not particularly well. It was definitely an English-dominated event. Um, we The only session that we did have that was bilingual, we had a speaker from Tierra del Fuego. Um, well, actually, two speakers, one from Argentina, one from Chile. So both sides of Tierra del Fuego, the southernmost tip of South America. And um, I basically interviewed them I, I fortunately speak Spanish so I would interview them and kind of translate and we would kind of double up um, it was a little bit inefficient in that sense but it was at least allowed us to get a bit of diversity the biggest challenge with the language barrier is not the technology actually um, zoom which is the platform that we use does allow for simultaneous translation and for subtitles the problem is actually more the cost of having someone to do the translation as opposed to um, uh, the technology available. So we're exploring that while being reasonable about what's achievable within our within our budget. Obviously, you need someone who can do that live translation, and we're not able to translate as much as I would love to. We can't translate every session into different languages. Um, but perhaps what we'll do more this year if, is if we have maybe a couple of sessions that are focused in in prominent languages um, that are that are relevant. But uh, yeah, could do could do better on that one. I'm, I'm sure uh, any conference organizer is 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 familiar with the the drawbacks of hosting just in English is that you do miss out on some opportunities. But there are, um, I mean, there are some organizations that are particularly plugged into, for example, the French islands, French speaking islands around the world, and um, we're hoping that if we're able to work with them a little bit more, we can maybe run a couple of sessions in 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 French and then maybe open up to some other languages as well. 
And I, I wonder if there is an opportunity to reach out to, you know, some of the students who are in translation programs, linguistics programs, and maybe they would um, consider this as sort of part of a learning experience or something. Yeah, I would love to do that. If, uh, if anyone listening has any connections with people who might be able to help us with that translation, would love it because it really is a, more of a, a people issue, a capacity issue than a technology issue. Yeah, and and it's it's difficult as somebody who used to work as an interpreter um, in in the field. I didn't do simultaneous translation; I did consecutive translation, and even that is very difficult to do for a long period of time, right? Well, and I think that one of the whole values of what we're doing is having live sessions. I mean, all of our sessions from last year are recorded. Actually, uh, actually, just got an email before this call that said. Uh, over 4,000 hours of our sessions have been uh, viewed this year, which is amazing. So people are definitely watching the recordings. Uh, but the, there's value in having the, these as live sessions. The value there is that people can interact not only with the speakers and the, uh, the uh, moderator, but also with each other. And I think that was what was really exciting. We were able to create a platform where people could network and talk to each other. And in a way, a virtual event actually is a bit more interactive than a physical event because you are able to have that more live connection um, and ask questions as the speaker is talking and uh, use some of the tools like polling, like the Q&A. When, when used effectively, it can actually make it more interactive, I think, than an in-person session. Yeah, I think I agree. And also, because you're recording these sessions, they become a teaching material as well. They can be used in many other ways afterwards, which is also interesting and sometimes hard to do with live sessions if you haven't recorded. Yeah, we always record everything. Also, because we, we're, we're realistic. I mean, we had 27 sessions last year over the course of one week. So there was no expectation that everyone would join every session. You know, some people maybe signed up just to join the session about electric vehicles on islands, which is totally fine. Um, whereas others might have tuned in to lots of them and wanted to watch um, all of them. But if, uh, yeah, I can I can send you the link afterwards. Maybe you can include in, in the show notes for anyone interested. My one favorite session from last year that I would recommend anyone uh, to watch is we had a speaker from the Gullah Geechee people, um, which are the islands in South Carolina. And um, she did an absolutely queen quet of the Gullah Geechee people. She did an absolutely fantastic job talking about their cultures and traditions and made a really interactive session, which was great live, but still totally worth watching um, on record as well. Excellent. I would certainly be happy to add to add that uh, the link to the show notes. You mentioned uh, one of the sessions was about um, you know electric vehicles and uh, on small islands, and I wanted to I wanted to kind of move the conversation on because we have only about ten minutes left into your other interest around sustainability and energy on islands. What are you working on these days? Yeah. So. I think um, right now, trying to stay in the islands, uh, island sphere as much as possible, um, I decided not to go down the route of, of the PhD for now. So have got Island Innovation is um, a consultancy, I guess we try to position ourselves at the intersection of sustainability and communications. Um, and a lot of the projects we do are with island companies or island-based uh, projects. Um, I've got a couple of really interesting projects on islands coming up, but I can't actually uh, tell you about them yet. Um, one exciting project, which is with my other hat, Solar Head of State and NGO, 
is uh, in very much in the renewable energy field. We actually have got agreements with the Pacific Island Development Forum, um, it, obviously in the Pacific, which has about uh, 11 member countries, and the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States in the Caribbean, which has another uh, 10 or 11 member countries, to work with them on doing solar energy plus battery storage installations on government buildings in all their member states. And actually, we've received funding for the projects in the Pacific, interestingly enough, from the government of India. So India are uh, co-funding these projects in the Pacific Islands to do solar energy installations on government buildings in various countries. Um, we were just about getting ready to mobilize that project. You can imagine the bureaucracy with money coming from India via two different UN organizations and then back to the Pacific. So we've had a lot of paperwork to do. We were just getting ready to start implementing that project when the, the crisis hit uh, with the pandemic. So obviously that's on hold uh, for now as there's no travel in or out of most of the Pacific Islands. But uh, hopefully towards the end of this year or early next year, we'll be mobilizing the equipment there and, and starting those installations, which is uh, a really exciting project. How often do you see these projects cooperating in this way from Caribbean to Pacific Islands? Are islands often, um, island states, are they often cooperating in those ways around issues of sustainability, climate emergency? Um, I would say at the international level, I mean, the, the, the reason for this co cooperation is through our organization, the, the Solar Head of State NGO. So that's allowed us to kind of build a bit of that cooperation. There are huge opportunities, particularly between the SIDS countries to cooperate. And at the, at the UN level, of course, there is cooperation. You have organizations like um, AOSIS, uh, the, the Association of Small Island States, which bring them all together and help them negotiate as a block in, for example, the climate change negotiations. So you obviously see that high level negotiation um, and partnership. Um, we've had a couple of, of sessions, um, both online and during larger international events, where we've brought people together from um, these different islands in, in the Pacific and the Caribbean. Obviously, there is benefit from that exchange. Um, the difficulty is mostly time zone um, and distance and the cost of getting between places. I mean, even within the Caribbean, you know, sometimes it's cheaper to get from the UK to Barbados than from Barbados to Jamaica, let alone from the Caribbean to the Pacific Islands. So obviously there's clear barriers there with, with uh, transportation, but that's where I think this virtual um, opportunities come in. There are some things that happen a lot more. I think um, I was talking with someone from a big foundation that's based in the Caribbean that was looking at uh, bringing in more of a youth uh, climate justice activism element to the Caribbean and helping train people. That's something that's happening a lot in the Pacific and you see less of in the Caribbean. So um, there's definitely uh, areas that you know can be, can be shared between them, but also between small island states and uh, the Canadian islands, the British Isles, um, you know, there are other islands. I think there's a lot that can go in both directions there. Uh, any speculation of why you would see less youth activism around climate change on Caribbean islands than you do in Pacific islands? Hmm, yeah, this is pure speculation <laughs> from sure. my experience. But um, I think part of it is that the risk in the Pacific, given the number of atoll countries, the Marshall Islands, Tuvalu, Kiribati, that obviously raises um, raises kind of the pressure in a way when you see there are several atoll nations. The closest you really have in the Caribbean is the Bahamas, which, which are not necessarily atolls, but they have low, a lot of low-lying islands. So I think that that is maybe a, a kind of geographical thing that has an, has an impact. Um, it may also just be, be cultural as well um, in terms of different pressures. I mean, this is 
not directly related, but one obvious thing you see is a difference between, between the Caribbean and the Pacific is the Caribbean has a much more active private sector. So um, the, whereas in the Pacific, there's a much larger role for government or international aid agencies. You see a lot more private sector activity in the Caribbean. So the economies do work somewhat differently, I think. And these are obviously huge generalizations because there are big differences between Pacific Islands and between Caribbean. Of course. Um, as well. So, so those things maybe, maybe play a role as well. Um, but also I think there has been outside um, spotlight on the Pacific Islands because of these, these atoll nations. There's been an outside spotlight um, where there's been kind of the canary in the coal mine argument has been used about Tuvalu a lot. And obviously that, if, if you see that, whenever Tuvalu is covered in international media, it's normally calling, saying that it's sinking or calling it canary in the coal mine or words to that effect. And obviously that type of language also does have an impact locally on how people um, think, think, think about the places, who people from there think about themselves. I'm really curious to see how we can use technology to strengthen some of those connections. And, and I'm thinking about, you know, potentially your summit. And I'm thinking about young people here who are very active in climate change protests and awareness raising. And, you know, here we are on Newfoundland, which is one of the major oil producing parts of Canada. Um, so that's really interesting to me to hear that these differences across the regions exist, but it would be also interesting maybe to use technology to find ways to connect the youth in all of those places and um, see what they can learn from each other. Uh, absolutely. And actually I'm working, uh, we haven't put a date on it yet, but I'm working with AOSIS, the Association of Small Island States I mentioned before, um, to put on a youth, uh, a, a SIDS youth webinar uh, that they'll be leading um, hopefully next month. Um, and that'll obviously be focused on on SIDS youth. But again, I think there's there's a lot of youth-led work happening in, for example, the Scottish Islands. Um, it's just that the priorities and the attention is different. There it might be much more around um, providing uh, education. It could be on uh, bilingual access um, <clears throat> and Scots Gaelic. Um, there's, there's various different kind of pressures there that means so I, I, I you don't hear much for example about climate ju justice activism coming from the Scottish islands the, the, the focuses and the pressures of the work taking place there are just different um, but obviously regardless of the theme that sharing of information is is really key yeah and you are excellently positioned to do that with your experience in doing these kinds of global online summits well, we're trying, and I think the biggest asset that we now have is access to this global network. We now have a community through Island Innovation of 12,000 people. So we're really hoping the summit this year will be even bigger, reach even more people, and uh, bring in some of those islands that you don't always uh, hear as, as much from. I mean, often the um, African islands are left out of the conversation um, because of technology or because of the networks or language that exist. So we're trying as hard as we can within the resources that we have to broaden the, the reach of these conversations. Yeah, and uh, bringing up technology, um, that's of course another barrier that moving some of these conversations online can additionally exacerbate the issues of inequality and access. Yeah, it's something to be con considerate of. On the other hand, um, it, I think what we were able to do with the Virtual Island Summit the pros there outweighed the cons because what we were able to do is 
reach a lot of grassroots organizations and also across different types of industries that perhaps wouldn't have participated um, if this had been an in-person event. They wouldn't have had the budget to fly halfway across the world to participate. So I do think that the virtual element on the whole does allow more people to participate and a wider breadth of people. And that's not just geographic, that's also thinking about stay-at-home parents that otherwise might not be able to travel, disabled people, you know, it's a whole range of people that can benefit from virtual events that might, for whatever reason, have more problems, whether they be financial or physical, to participate in a um, in-person uh, summit. Um, one, one other thing to add there is we did have a couple of people, I mean, the, the best example is we had a presenter at the Island Summit from Tristan de Kuna, uh, British territory in the South Atlantic that has, I think, four or five ships per year, um, no airport, really, really remote, um, not much of an internet conversation, uh, of a connection, not a good internet connection, but a good phone line. And they were actually able to dial in over the phone and do a presentation. So that's about as remote as it gets in terms of islands. And they were still able to participate in, in some way. And I think uh, the technology did allow for that for people who didn't necessarily have a good internet connection. So yeah, we did really try with that to reach as many people as possible. Yeah, it's fascinating. Before I let you go, when you look uh, through your work in island sustainability and island innovation, when you look at the trends, what are some of the, what are a couple of most exciting things that you're seeing at the moment? Mm. That's a great question. I think a lot of things have obviously been derailed over the last um, <clears throat> month or so, but even around the last month, I've seen various organizations looking at how um, island response can um, be, island responses can be shared around COVID-19 and um, the, the crisis there, because islands often have very different needs in their mainland areas. And in, in many countries, there was an issue of people from big urban areas fleeing in their camper vans to island communities um, when uh, the shutdowns and, and the crisis started to, to happen. So even in the last month, I've seen all of these networks and innovation sharing um, good practices between different islands, um, which, is, which is really uh, exciting. I mean, I, 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 the other thing is that with my background in renewables, I do see this kind of onward march of renewable energy on islands in general for the for the for good reasons, um, particularly in in the small island developing states, you're seeing a general trend towards um, uh, high commitments towards renewable energy, using microgrids, using battery storage, which I think is really exciting. Not only because those islands can become more self self sufficient in the long term, um, but also that um, the they can set this really interesting example when you're talking about the climate change summits, etc. Island states being at the forefront of committing to, to renewable energy. So maybe that's a little bit cliched in the world of island studies, but I still see that onward trend really heading in the right direction. And the fact that you do overall see island uh, leadership on issues like climate change um, is, uh, yeah, is good, is good to see still. Thank you so much, James. Thank you for having me. Really good to chat with you. That was James Elsmore, the founder and managing director of Island Innovation. At the time of our conversation, he was in Colombia. In the episode notes, you can find links to Island Innovation and the events they have hosted in the past and planning to host in the future. This is it for another episode of Hot Talk. To find out more about the podcast, visit otokpodcast.com. That's O-T-O-K podcast.com 
The song you are listening to is James's second pick, and what a pick! This is Hawaiian legend Israel Kamakaviwole with Take Me Home Country Road. I am Boyan Fierst. Thanks for listening.
makan. <laughs>